Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world. Ever. Ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? Eyes for the image. So, The Image, 1969 black and white short film directed by Michael Armstrong, starring Michael Byrne and David Bowie. And this was his first film role, mm. wasn't it? Uh, and the film is one of the few short films ever to receive an X certificate, uh, which is due to the violence in it. Yeah. And Bowie was paid £30 for a three day shoot in September 1967. So, the plot, or what there is of it, so you've got a troubled artist, which is played by Michael Byrne, haunted by a ghostly young man, David Bowie, who appears to step right out of one of the artist's own paintings, no matter what he does to try. And get rid of this image that keeps coming back. Byrne even kills Bowie in the end, but it comes back to life immediately. So it's all sort of weird psychological horror. There's no dialogue in it, and it's black and white. It's just, it just adds to the creepy dislocation of it. Yeah, and uh, obviously uh, Bowie's experience with Lindsay Kemp, yeah. absolutely invaluable for it. And on the back of the film script, it explains that it's a study in the illusionary reality world of the schizophrenic mind of the artist at his point in creativity. That's what I thought. That's, yeah. what, I, that's what I thought yeah, when I saw yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you can make up your own mind about it. You can you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah. It's 14 minutes yeah. long. Won't take up too much of your time. So the story behind it and how it got made, it was made in the winter of 67. So three years earlier, Armstrong was at RADA and he was asked to write a screenplay by a fellow student called uh, a guy called Tony Malam who was looking for a short film to direct. Malam never made the film in the end. No, and the screenplay was forgotten until Armstrong was offered the chance to make a short film for Border Films. And so these short films were basically used as programme fillers when distributed a Double bills of foreign films. <laughs> we're talking. We're, we're talking blue films. We aren't are. We? We're talking yeah. sex films, aren't yeah. we? Really are. So the idea being so that they could then cash in what was known as ED money. Okay, the government's financial incentive to encourage British filmmaking. See, I thought that was a typo. ED money. I thought it was supposed to be easy money. But anyway, <laughs> and it probably wasn't that. But for the part of the boy, Armstrong cast a then completely unknown David Bowie, and he picked up a copy of Bowie's album in a London record shop, and he loved the wicked humour in it. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, Bowie had recorded this album and, and the popular misconception is nobody even bothered hearing it. But obviously it did reach certain people and they were smitten. Yeah. Okay, including Armstrong. So he's one of a small group of Bowie fans at the time and he approached Bowie earlier to write the score for a film comedy based on Greek mythology called A Floral Tale. Uh, Bowie was also lined up to play the role of the uh, Thracian singer Orpheus. 
<laughs> it never got made. Go figure. <laughs> so John Finch actually was originally cast as the artist yeah. before he became famous, uh, but he was already committed to another project, so Armstrong brought in Michael Byrne instead, and he also became well-known for roles in A Bridge Too Far, Braveheart, Gangs of New York, uh, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, where he played the Nazi villain. Yeah, that's right. There was a tiny, tiny production crew here. you got lighting cameraman uh, Osama Rawi went on to work on Zulu Dawn and Parting Shots, and Armstrong's close mate Martin Campbell worked on Edge of Darkness, Goldeneye and Mask of Zorro. So, yeah, the film was shot in black and white over three days, as we know, in an empty house just off the Harrow Road, and it was really, really cold throughout the shoot and really tough for Bowie. He had to spend hours hanging around outside, literally at one point, hanging onto a window frame above an eight-foot drop in a basement. Um, and and they were also pouring water on him yeah. from a, a hose pipe just to signify rain. <laughs> Armstrong said later he was actually bright blue all over when he finally came back inside. And bet he was, yeah. So yeah. one of the central plot features in the film is a painted portrait of David Bowie done by the artist William Mason. But afterwards, Armstrong gave the painting to Ken Pitt, who hung it in the hallway of his flat. Mm. And when Pitt left the building in 1983... It was sold at auction. Oh, OK. So the soundtrack of the image was composed by Noel Janus, who's father of actress uh, Samantha Janus. Um, OK. And so various delays meant that barely half of the screenplay actually ended up being filmed. But Armstrong asked Border Film to give him more money to finish it, and they said no. Uh, they just wouldn't do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Armstrong ended up having a big row with them over it, after which they took the film away from him and gave it to the in-house editor. This proved to be a, a complete disaster, not least because the edited film only ran for seven and a half minutes, which was half the minimum length required to qualify for ED money. For Edie, that's Edie, yeah. that's Edie for you to say, Bob. Uh, so they asked Armstrong back to fix it. Mm. Go, this is this piece is longer than the film. Oh. He ended up expanding the film in a way that was greater than the original screenplay and managed to get it in at just under 15 minutes. War, <laughs> never mind the quality, feel the width. Screenplay, there's no dialogue. It's <laughs> uh, a good point. Uh, obviously, the border were happy, didn't they? They got the Edie money. So Armstrong said later it was the first film to grow twice as long in the cutting room and it was shown to trade with one of Border's foreign films, All Quiet on the Eastern Front. Right, okay. And the image finally opened at the JC Cinema in Piccadilly Circus in 1969, sandwiched between two foreign sex films. You were right, Bob. So we're skipping now. This is from your own collection. This is a copy of Sound. Great condition, by the way. Do you keep these very flat? It's very tasty, mate. So this is from uh, April the 14th, 1973, and Bowie is a huge star at this point. And so, of course, you know, cinemas, well, the JC Cinema in Trafalgar Square, start showing the image again. Uh, it's reviewed by Andrew Furnival, who devotes three entire paragraphs to it. But clearly doesn't like it and he says here it's short a banal 12 minute silent perhaps 12 minutes 14 what perhaps early warhol plagiarism who knows made by border films at least seven years ago and then goes on to describe the plot which there isn't much going on there but it's just one of those things thrown out there because bowie was famous and thought what the hell let's let's re-screen it well that's the thing isn't it i mean that's those things i mean i'm not sure that it came back to haunt him necessarily but you know if you look at uh, everything at that point in time was just flying around from david bowie the laughing gnome resurfaced mm. didn't it you know the world yeah, of david of bowie resurfaced all of these things that had gone on in his past that nobody had noticed were now getting dragged out again because he was famous and, and people wanted to exploit it, understandably, probably. Yeah, and anybody wondering what happened to Michael Armstrong later, he did make some uh, some other films like Mark of the Devil and The Haunted House of Horror with Richard Avalon, Richard O'Sullivan and Dennis Price. Dennis Price, oh. I mean, one of the great horror actors. And then he got into, well, what should we say, oh, naughty comedies, Mark. Uh, mm. The Sex Thief, 
1973, Eskimo oh. Nell, both of which featured Armstrong himself, followed by Adventures of a Private Eye in 77. Apparently, he turned down, he opted out of doing Adventures of a Plumber's Mate and went back to horror instead. <laughs> the A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So I is for images. It is, or to give it its full title, Images, 1966 to 1967, brackets, anything we could find in the cupboard, close brackets, a compilation put together by Duram and Decker at the height of Bowie's popularity in the UK, and it's made up of the first solo LP and various singles and B-sides. Yes, of course, you know, we've done this before, we're talking about the Anthony newly influenced stuff that nobody was really interested in at the time, produced by Mike Vernon, a year after these songs were recorded, Duram dropped him. Yeah, well, we've mentioned this, you know. So in the UK, Decca had already put out The World of David Bowie in 1970. And that was in the wake of Space Oddity. Yeah. Then reissued it in 1973 with the Ziggy Cut. Mm. So it had had, you know, the Curly Cut and then the Ziggy Cut yeah. again. You know, all the confusion that we've talked about before. And, uh, and, and yeah, they just wanted yeah. to exploit his material. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and if you weren't wary enough, you'd probably pick that up and think it was, it was current. Yeah. All right? In the States, though, none of the Duram songs have been reissued since it first came out in 67. So they packaged them all in a double album set, housed it in a great sort of cartoon comic panel sleeve on Decca's American label, London Records, in 73. And I'm looking across there, and there is your own copy of that, which still it looks pristine to me. It's pretty nice condition, yeah. So it was designed by Neon Park, who'd also done Frank Zappa's Weasels' Rip My Flesh, yeah. and Little Feet's Sailing Shoes and Dixie Chicken. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. For those who don't know it, it is, I mean, it's, it's a great cover, isn't it? It's just really kind of wistful, isn't it? It's, and it's so of its time, but each of the panels, it's, it's a cartoon uh, mm. it's a cartoon affair, and, uh, and it's really sweet, but each of the different uh, frames within it, mm. it, they represent a different song. So you've got David Bowie there, um, well, he looks like he's actually got nout on, yeah. uh, but it does stop just below his belly button. <laughs> uh, but it's sell me a coat, that represents, and Bowie's outside, there is a four-poster bed there with, yeah. the, with, with the sun and uh, palm trees in the yeah. distance, but he's in the snow, with snow on his shoulders, yeah. and probably with the wind blowing around a little bit like it is around our arctic oh, yes. tent where we oh, are yes. here and uh, there's also the laughing gnome which unsurprisingly features a gnome who's laughing get away uh, there is also yeah did you ever have a dream for when i live my dream yeah. we are hungry men uncle arthur uh, there is a happy land yes, please mr Gravedigger on the back digging a grave yeah. it's all there karma man has got buddha you know and mm. uh, yeah he's, he's great come by my toys silly boy blue it's, yeah and little bombardier's got a, a rocket there with a, a couple of little toddlers around it Aww. and what's on its head I wouldn't like to say uh, but also at the bottom we got Valentino and uh, Carmen Miranda yeah yeah in the heat of the morning I'm not sure how that relates mm. to it but I mean it's a, it's a great cover it I mean there's another cover as well, well uh, which is the one here of Davy Bowie released much later and that's around the young American yeah it's going to get it? onto that so this is 75 isn't it that one's reissued in the States with an up-to-date photo then up-to-date of the young Americans with this big tie and acoustic guitar I mean I remember seeing that in the shop and thinking oh what is this it's just come out you know, I was unwary. Realised it was the old stuff from a decade earlier. Yeah, and then you go through it, and then you realise exactly what it is. Yeah. But you buy it anyway. <laughs> That's just <laughs> the way it is. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. 
I is also for Eric Idle. Eric Idle of Monty Python, most famously, and lots of other things as well. Mm. But, uh, do you know, uh, Eric Idle does pop up every now and then in David Bowie's timeline. And uh, I was wondering exactly what his relationship was with David Bowie. And I did some research, and it was quite hard to find anything. I asked Mark Adams, actually, from David oh, Bowie.com yeah. yeah. to help me out. And he did, bless him. Uh, but uh, he, what drew me in, actually, is the fact that he, uh, Eric Idle is Duncan Jones's godfather. Ah, okay. So there was obviously a, a, a good relationship there, yeah. you know. And so, and Bowie was a huge Monty Python fan. We know that much. He, yeah. He loved uh, the goons and he loved Derek and Clive and, yeah. Pete and Co- Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and Monty Python. And he said that everyone at Haddon Hall used to watch Monty Python uh, and they were in stitches. Yeah, that's a great image, isn't it? All crowded around the TV set. There's also a great story in Kevin Can's book about Bowie and Angie going to uh, a gay club after a Spiders gig in Edinburgh in May 73. And they go in there, they get to their table that they'd reserved and they find Graham Chapman from Monty Python and his partner sat there instead. And Angie said to him, do you know who we are? And he probably did, you yeah. know. So uh, Python were doing the first farewell tour at that time and Bowie was sharing the Post House Hotel with them. And Michael Palin complained about not being able to go to sleep because of the all-night party. <laughs> OK. Other things about Eric Idle. Uh, Eric Idle and Bowie went on holiday once with Iggy Pop, possibly. Right, OK. Uh, two days before Bowie passed away, Eric Idle tweeted, Happy birthday to the three kings, Elvis, David Bowie and Graham Chapman. Yeah, and this is a quote from John Cleese. He said, I remember coming back home once when Monty Python were on tour. I think we'd just been in Newcastle. And the next morning, Eric said, I went out to a dinner party and David Bowie was there. He was really excited. But if someone had said to me, want to come and meet David Bowie, I would have just thought... Why? Oh, come I mean, on. you know, he's a, yeah, he's, he seemed like a, a deeply unimpressed man on lots of occasions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is from Eric Idle's blog here, which is called The Needy Bastard Diary. And he says, I remember something Robin Williams did to a persistent heckler the night I first met him in London in 1980. I got the entire audience to pray for the death of this unfortunate man. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. And it makes a nice change, me taking your jokes. Oh, all right, bitter, posthumous kidding. And I never minded him using my material at all because he always took me on great holidays and I had no other outlet for gags anyway back then. I remember saying to David Bowie once after a Robin show that I found it hilarious. You should, said David. You said most of it at dinner. Ooh, and uh, this is again from the diaries of uh, and the blog of Eric Idle. January was a rotten month when I lost another friend. I've been thinking a lot about David Bowie. We shared a very unlikely friendship in the 80s and 90s with many great times on holiday. People don't know that he had the greatest sense of humour. He loved to laugh, and he laughed loudly. And often. Yeah, lovely. And another recollection here. He says, in 1991, he was kind enough to loan me his beautiful Balinese home on the island of Mustique for a few weeks while I wrote a movie which was splitting hairs. Uh, I can't begin to describe the beauties of this house or the amazing views perched high on a hillside overlooking the Caribbean. But this is a cheeky letter I wrote to thank him for our delicious stay. And it starts off uh, addressed from uh, Britannia Bay House, Mustique, West Indies, April 10th, 1991. It's quite a long affair, which we won't go into, but this is a start of it. It says, Dear David, just leaving the house. One or two things. The fire is nearly out. I think the hillside looks better, all bare and black. And Arnie agrees. And what follows on from there is just like a nonsensical description of uh, supposedly Eric Idle and his mate just destroying David Bowie's house. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So I is for... Not only interviews, Bob, but important interviews. Yeah, so of course, you know, Bowie gave many, many, many interviews over his career, uh, some more important than others, some of the key ones. We're just going to have a, a quick look at. Obviously, there's a lot to go at here. Uh, beginning, say, with Penny Valentine's piece in Disc, which came out in 11th of October 1969. And, you know, Space Oddity is there. So this is he's a new kid on the block at this point, And she sets it up thus. She says, David Bowie's 22 years old, thin, with a halo of fair hair, a delicately soft face and two cold eyes. One's pale kitten blue and the other one green. That's not true. No. And it makes it rather disconcerting to talk to him. If he reminds you of anyone, it's a gentle mixture of Bob Dylan and Donovan. He says he sings like Dylan would have done if he'd been born in England. And he's an absolute charmer. Yeah, she continues, Bowie was born in Brixton and now lives in Beckenham, Kent. His father, a delicate Yorkshireman, recently died. And his half-brother, whom Bowie uh, considers a genius, is in hospital. So most of his tenderness is directed towards his mother, whom he takes to the studio on top of the pops to cheer her yeah, up. Yeah, I know. Never heard that. Bowie says he had a very happy child. I was lonely, but I never wanted and I never went hungry. I saw people deprived around me and kids going to school with their shoes falling apart. And I suppose, yes, it did leave an impression on me that I wanted them to have better. I'm really a born idealist. Right, OK. He does have material possessions, a small blue Fiat and a house called Haddon Hall, which he and his affable young record producer, Tony Visconti, <laughs> very nice, and their respective girlfriends are moving into soon. And he manages to live quite comfortably on about £12 a week, as some he is consistently earned over the past four years. Wow, okay. He's not even afforded himself a rise. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, she concludes by saying, David Bowie is a very difficult person to sum up, to arrange as a psychiatrist might in little sections of motive and result, but one thing is very, very certain. In the future, and this is very prescient here, in the future is going to mean much more to the world than just a name, an ex-mime actor or a leading inhabitant of Beckenham in Kent. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. OK, uh, this one being with uh, Chris Welsh, and that's a melody maker, the 15th of November, 1969, uh, and it's a quote from Bowie. I run an arts lab, which is my chief occupation. It's in Beckenham, and I think it's the best in the country. There isn't one sued involved. All the people are real, like labourers or bank clerks. Yeah, he said, we started our lab a few months ago with poets and artists who just came along. It's got bigger and bigger, and now we have our own light show and sculptures, etc. And I never knew there were so many sitar players in Beckenham. All right. <laughs> I still don't consider myself a 
performer. I'm a writer. I really wouldn't like to make singing a full-time occupation. Yeah. Interesting. It's great looking through these things. And it then is. just seeing how he ducks and dives and turns yeah. and changes his mind. Well, and... this has become more and more apparent. I mean, the, the next one's a great, a very, very famous one, this one, isn't it? The Michael Watts one. It is. Melody Maker, 21st of January, 1972. And the headline being, Oh, You Pretty Thing. And this is the most controversial one. And it's where Bowie declared himself to be bisexual. And what's later said in his statement changes the lifestyle of a generation and kick-started the LGBT movement. So Watts opens with, David Bowie, rock's swishiest outrage, a self-confessed lover of effeminate clothes, Bowie, who has hardly performed in public since his space oddity hit of three years ago, is coming back in super style. Yeah. Dangle that carrot. Absolutely. He says, even though he wasn't wearing silken gowns right out of liberties and his long blonde hair no longer fell waverly past his shoulders, David Bowie was looking yummy. Mm. He'd slipped into an elegant patterned type of combat suit, very tight around the legs, with the shirt unbuttoned to reveal a full expanse of white torso. The trousers were turned up at the calves to allow a better glimpse of a huge pair of red plastic shoes. So Sounds like, full... you know, bloody, what's that grey book called? <laughs> 21 Shades of Grey or whatever? <laughs> 50, isn't it? Is it? I think so. Um, I must have read the early edition. <laughs> David uses words like Varda and Super quite a lot, writes Watts. Uh, he's gay, he says. The paradox is that he still has what he describes as a good relationship with his wife and his baby son at Zowie. He supposes uh, he's what people call bisexual. Right, OK, so it continues. David's present image is to come on like a swishy queen, a gorgeously effeminate boy. He's as camp as a row of tents. I'm gay, he says, and always have been, even when I was David Jones. But there's a slight jollity about how he says it, a secret smile at the corners of his mouth. I say to him, why aren't you wearing your girl's dress today? Oh, dear, he replied. You must understand that it's not a woman's, it's a man's dress. That was crucial. Get him, Dave. Yeah. Bowie also says, The important fact is I don't have to drag up. I want to go on like this for long after the fashion has finished. I'm just a cosmic yob, I suppose. I've always worn my own style of clothes. I change every day. I'm not outrageous. I'm David Bowie. Right, Okay. So, from the same interview, Bowie is talking in an office at Gem Music, where his management operates. A tape machine is playing his next album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which is about a fictitious pop group. They're releasing it shortly, even though Hunky Dory has only just come out. How great. Okay. He goes on to write, he says, his songs are always ten years ahead of their time, says Bowie, but this year he's anticipated the trends. And this is a Bowie quote. I'm going to be huge, he says, and it's quite frightening in a way. Uh, He says, his big red boots stabbing the air in time to the music because I know that when I reach my peak and it's time for me to be brought down it will be with a bump wow so he's already like anticipating failing just about yeah. on the cusp of breaking and he's also you know projecting Ziggy even though Hunky Dory's just about to come out well we, we know that don't we yeah. was it a couple of weeks later after Hunky Dory was finished he was Plotting and recording yeah, Ziggy. He was on it. So, uh, Charles Shaw Murray from The Enemy, the 11th of August 1973. So, he catches up with Bowie at the Chateau Douvril in Paris doing pin ups, and Bowie's wearing some Ziggy Stardust old clothes. He says, Remember the red pants with the tartan numerals and the 69 over the crotch? Out they come again with a purple velvet top and a delicious assortment of belts. <laughs> Never heard the phrase delicious assortment of belts before. Bowie talks about being a star in this interview. He says it's like a factory job. I think you have to be that serious about it if you intend to stay in. So he's making the distinction here between just a star and just a musician. Yeah. Okay? So you really have to believe in the phantom rock star myth. I'm only talking about a small number of people who have it. They're not stars. They're musicians, which is a different kettle of fish. Musicians are another breed of people altogether. I don't know very much about musicians at all or what makes them tick. 
It's funny because my mum used to say, like, you know, uh, when she was growing up, you'd have, like, film stars, mm. and they were stars. Mm. Or you would have, like, you know, some of the big singing stars, yeah. like Frank Sinatra. But she said, everybody these days is a star. <laughs> they're a soap star. She said, mm. they're not, a, you know, if you're in Coronation Street, you're not a star, you're an actor. Yeah. It's almost like the same difference that Bowie's making here between being a musician and getting on with it and being somebody who is an icon. Definitely. So this one here is Cameron Crowe, Rolling Stone, May 1975, strap yourselves in for this one. Crow sets it up. It's four in the morning, Hollywood time, and David Bowie is twitching with energy. He's fidgeting, jabbing a cigarette in and out of his pursed lips, bouncing lightly on a stool behind the control board in a makeshift demo studio, staring through the glass at Iggy Pop. Did some demos for Iggy, okay. Bowie, this is the one where Bowie says, I've rocked my roll. It's a boring dead end. There'll be no more rock and roll records or tours from me. The last thing I want to be is some useless fucking rock singer. Okay, so uh, Rolling Stone, June 1975. So this is a series of no, sort of notorious sort of meetings with Cameron Crowe. And I think for the first time, really, in when you read through Bowie's interviews, like the ones we've just been in, 72, they're quite manipulative in their way, aren't they? Because he's sort of like almost kind of beefing up his own legend. You, you get the idea that Bowie's orchestrating this stuff. But these interviews with, with Cameron Crowe, when Bowie wasn't in the best health, wasn't looking after himself, he lets the guard slip a few times here, doesn't he? That's it, crucially. I mean, it is a lot of the time around here, it's the drugs talking, isn't it? Which, yeah. which he does recognise later on in his career, and we might well do in a moment. But yeah, June 1975. So we're looking at just a couple of months after the last interview yeah, with Cameron sure. Crowe, who obviously had great access to him. I mean, Cameron Crowe, he had unrivaled access to Led Zeppelin oh, and all, yeah. all manner of bands, didn't mm. he? He said, uh, I could have been Hitler in England. Wouldn't have been hard. Concerts alone got so enormously frightening that even the papers were saying, this ain't rock music. This is bloody Hitler. Something must be done. And they were right. It was awesome. Actually, I wonder, I think I might have been a bloody good Hitler. I'd be an excellent dictator. Very eccentric and quite mad. Yeah, a real famous one, that. Mm. I mean, in Playboy, writing in Playboy in September 76, uh, Cameron Crowe starts to just realise he's accumulating these interviews now with Bowie. He said, my talks with Bowie began in early 75. Few of our sessions were marathon affairs. No matter how stimulating the conversation, after any longer than an hour of sitting still, Bowie could barely contain himself. Could we just have a short break? He'd blurt, not waiting for a reply. He'd then shoot to his feet, dart in another direction, sometimes to write a song or two, other times to dash off a painting. Uh, in one instance, he ended a session by asking for a random list of 20 items. I gave it to him. He studied the list for 10 seconds, handed it back, and recited it from memory, backward and forward. Wow. It's ridiculous. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. So uh, Cameron Crowe continues. He is fully aware that he is a sensational quote machine. The more shocking his revelation, from his homosexual encounters to his fascist leanings, the wider his grin. He knows exactly what interviewers consider good copy, and he gives them precisely that. The truth is probably inconsequential. Yeah, you know, as we've mentioned, so Bowie, you get an idea of the state Bowie was in. He's saying, what year is it now? 76? He said, I suppose I've been knocking on heaven's door for about 11 years now with one sort of high or another. The only kinds of drugs I use, though, are ones that keep me working for longer periods of time. Yeah, another quote, I have no message whatsoever. I really have nothing to say, no suggestions or advice, nothing. All I do is suggest some ideas that will keep people listening a bit longer. And out of it all, maybe they'll come up with a message and save me the work. My career has been kind of like that. I get away with murder. Yeah, goes on to say, honestly, don't know where the real David Jones is. He said, it's like playing the shell game, except I've got so many shells, I've forgotten what the pee looks like. I wouldn't know it if I found it. Being famous helps put off the problems of discovering yourself. 
And Bowie continues, I'd love to enter politics. I will one day. I'd adore to be Prime Minister. And yes, I believe very strongly in fascism. People have always responded with greater efficiency under a regimental leadership. And then some of the quotes that came back to haunt him in later years, says Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. Look at some of his films and see how he moved. I think he was quite as good as Mick Jagger. He said, I don't want to be Prime Minister of the old country. I'd have to create the state that I wish to live in first. I dream of one day buying companies and television stations owning and controlling them. It's strange. It's almost it like it's almost like the uh, Newton character from um, from the Man Who Fell to Earth, isn't it? Just, yeah. He's just really, really bizarre. I know. And you're thinking, was he conscious of? Was he deliberately trying to sabotage his own career at this point? I mean, what was the? You know, was there? Or was he just really spouting whatever just came into his head? Yeah. I mean, he's probably doing it with a real sense of mischief and and misjudging exactly what he's saying because uh, you know he he did read an awful lot, didn't he, yeah. uh, about uh, fascism. And, and and obviously, so it was all flying around his brain, and with the drugs taking over as well, he just like put two and two together and, yeah. and started perhaps to think it was a good idea, or, or at least wanted to ruffle feathers. And he'd done. I mean, he ruffled feathers a, a lot with his sexuality and stuff, sure. and nobody was interested in that no. anymore, were they? No. So maybe it was just a very ill-conceived way of like you know making yeah. the splashes because we we were mentioning these now, saying these are the most notorious interviews that he ever did, and he went back and he, he just he, I think he said was it the phrase I was out of my gourd? Yeah, that's right. You know, so yeah. we know that, but also, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Chris Charlesworth, Melody Maker, 13th of March, 1976, and the interview took place in a hotel in Detroit. In his black tracksuit, he looked healthy, and although he could add a few pounds in weight, his brain is as trim as his figure. His hair, blonde at the front and red at the back, had been groomed by his personal hairdresser. It swept up in a quiff and held in place with water. <laughs> Not even styling gel. No. Um, Bowie says, I'm just doing this tour for the money. I've never earned any money before, mm. uh, but this time I'm going to make some. I think I deserve it. Don't you? So this is station to station, of course, isn't mm. it? He says, I've heard I look like a cabaret performer, but I've never even seen a cabaret performer, so I wouldn't know. The reaction is a lot better, and I guess that it's because I'm still giving them theatre. But whether they want that or not, I don't know. And I don't really care. The audience is about a tour behind me anyway, but then they always are. So there's like an arrogance going on here. It looks like he's adopting the, the kind of Thin White Duke character itself. It's funny as well, because he says, I've never seen a cabaret character. Yeah. Or a cabaret performer. Mm. Uh, but the it's been recognised that some of the uh, artists in cabaret influenced the way that he dressed. Yeah. And also some of the waiters who were in <laughs> Berlin when he was living there. Yeah, just pick the bones. It's, yeah. it's just a funny one. Yeah, and Judy Dench as well. <laughs> yeah. Theatre. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Bowie says, uh, I wanted to use a new kind of staging, and I think this staging will become one of the most important ever. It will affect every kind of rock and roll act from now on. I've reverted to pure Brechtian theatre, and I've never seen Brechtian theatre used like this since Jim Morrison and The Doors. And even then, Morrison never used white light like I do. So he's not short on confidence here. Uh, asked about his recent comments about right-wing politics we just heard uh, Bowie says oh that was just bullshit something I said off the cuff some paper wanted me to say something I didn't have much to say so I made things up and they took it all in there you go okay so job done and Charlesworth even asked whether he's still bisexual oh lord no positively not that was just a lie they gave me that image so I stuck to it pretty well for a few years I never adopted the stance it was given to me I've never done a bisexual action in my life on stage record or anywhere else I don't think I even had a gay follow much a few 
Glitter queens, maybe. Yeah, so again, Bowie kind of using stuff for his own ends, you know. There is one we'll just kind of touch on. Alan Jones, who he did for Melody Maker in October, 29th of October 1977. Bowie's in town in London to promote Heroes, and he's talking about, you know, he's kind of reflecting on his career a lot here. He said, I never intended to be so involved in rock and roll, and there I was in Los Angeles, right in the middle of it. I'm absolutely and totally uh, vulnerable by environment, and environment and circumstances affect my writing tremendously, to the point of absurdity sometimes. So Bowie says, my commitment commitment has certainly never been in rock and roll. I've made no secret of that. I was just a hack painter who wanted to find a new medium to work in, frankly. Yeah, he says, my role as an artist in rock is rather different to most. I encapsulate things very quickly in very short space of time, over two or three months usually. Generally, my policy has been that as soon as a system or process works, it's out of date. I move on to another area and another piece of time. So reflecting on Ziggy, Bowie says, Ziggy was created out of a certain arrogance. At that time, I was young and full of life, and that seemed like a very positive artistic statement. Then that fucker wouldn't leave me alone for years. That was when it all started to turn sour, and it soured so quickly you wouldn't believe it. And it took me an awful long time to level out. My whole personality was affected. Again, I brought that upon myself. I thought, I might as well take Ziggy to interviews as well. Why leave him on stage? Looking back, it was completely absurd. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's what the spiders said as well, wasn't yeah. they? They just said that he was, he, he, Ziggy just took him over. Yeah. He wouldn't travel with the rest of the band. He was this, this iconic rock star, yeah. which he was anyway, and doomed to failure, which Bowie already had the downfall Absolutely. plotted in his mind. And he found it easier to be Ziggy than himself at that point. You know, yeah. it, it kind of served a purpose. Uh, Alan Jones, of course, you know, the fascist comments are haunting him already 12 months on. Bowie sounds weary when he's asked about it. He said, I can't really clarify those statements I made. Or all I can say, I've made one or two glib theatrical observations on English society. The only thing I can now counter with is to state I am not a fascist. I'm apolitical. I guess it was all pretty glib, but then again, I'm not one for delicate social niceties. If I take a jump into the pool, I generally swallow all of the water. That's a great quote that I've never heard anybody else use. But yeah, you can see he's taken a real yeah. U-turn on it completely, hasn't he? Unsurprisingly. I mean, you know, again, it wasn't helped by the fact that people were looking for it. And Bowie started it, and he it was his fault, but then mm. when he went to the, uh, the was it Victoria train station? Yes, yeah. when he came back in 1976 for mm. Wembley, and and he did the wave from the open top car, mm. and they caught his wave, you know, in a photograph. Yes. And if you're waving and you caught halfway through the wave, it looks like a fascist salute, yeah. which they were gonna jump on, given the the fuel that they've been given by Bowie himself. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, and recorded and edited by Howard Knock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Joe Bryan, John Lennon, John Peel. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.